Time for swordplay. Alex, newly installed President Joe Biden says he's been leaning on prayer to lead because it gives him hope and centers him. You know, Nick, that's beautiful. In fact, I have a transcript of one of his favorite prayers right here. Mm. Would you like to hear it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It says, O Moloch, please accept my offerings for your planned parent priesthood. Let the sacrifice of freedom bring in the order of your reign. And may the unity of our people be like a tower reaching to heaven, and the depths of our devotion reach to the lowest valley of Gehenna. Amen and a woman. Man, I'm so proud to have a spiritual president, Nick, aren't you? <laughs> it's about time we got that clown out of office and got this guy in there. Yeah, you, wow. you said it, man. That that is something else. <laughs> Very spiritual. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. (laughs) I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. Swordplay, offering a double-edged perspective on Scripture, and we're going to do that this morning with 1 Peter chapter 5. That's right, and this is the final episode for the letter of 1 Peter. I'm excited to finish it up. It's been a long journey that we've been on. We had some extra episodes in there, and uh, I think it's it's nice. Let's uh, bring it to a close. So let's start off. Verse 1, Nick uh, mentions here the elders. Peter says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Who are the elders? Elders would be the leaders in the church. They have oversight over the church. Uh, the term here, for uh, that is used is episkopos, bishop, uh, for, uh, let's see, exercising oversight down in verse 2. You also have the, the term for shepherd, shepherding the flock there in verse 2 as well. And then you have elder here in verse 1. These are all the same term for the same office. Uh, two arguments I think we can make from this text seem to be, one, there should be a plurality of elders uh, over each uh, congregation, uh, so there's more than one elder uh, over each church. And then also, too, the elders who serve must be among or in the church that they serve. An elder has jurisdiction only over that single congregation he's a member of. Uh, all evidence indicates that elders were wide, wide, they were widespread in the early church in Jerusalem, Philippi, Asia Minor, Crete, uh, we read about elders in all those locations. And as I said, in the span of just two verses, Paul links elder, shepherd, and overseer. Uh, elder, uh, shepherd, and bishop. Uh, this is the same office, the same role in the church. There were not pastors, and then elders was a different office, and then bishops with an even different office, all separate from one another. They were, and I think they should continue to be, one in the same role in the church. Uh, so that's a bit about what I found about elders. Alex, what would you find? You know, it's interesting how Peter pivots from the statement of entrusting one soul to a faithful creator at the end of chapter 4, verse 19, now to the work of the elders. Peter may have intended that connection to convey the idea that part of how God cares for and protects his people as the chief shepherd is through the shepherds of the church. And I agree that Peter has one group of leaders in mind that he designates their responsibilities into three descriptions. These are older men, that is their elders, 
they care for God's sheep as shepherds of their souls, and they oversee the affairs of the church, elders, shepherds, and overseers. This same threefold description is given by Paul in Acts chapter 20 when he calls the elders at Ephesus to meet with him. That's in verse 17. And he exhorts them in their work of overseeing and shepherding the church of God, verse 28. So elders, shepherds, overseers. Again, Acts chapter 20. Paul also connects the role of elder and overseer in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. You can see the archives for that. Additionally, Peter exhorts these elders in three ways. So he connects the threefold description of elder, shepherd, overseer, but then he gives them a threefold exhortation. He says, first of all, your work is not voluntary. Uh, your work is voluntary, not compulsive. In other words, you don't have to do this work. It's your choice. It's your desire. Second, your work is not for sordid gain, but out of eagerness, that is, it's a labor of love. It's a willingness to sacrifice oneself. And third, your work is not for lording, but for leading. Leading by example. It's never do as I say, but always do as I do. So there's your threefold exhortation to the elders. Now, why do you think, Nick, that Peter calls himself an elder in verse 1? Well, you know, it's pretty straightforward. He he is an elder. <laughs> he he is a he's a shepherd. He's a bishop. And what's uh, what's fascinating is uh, he he has introduced himself earlier as an apostle, apostle of Jesus. Right. He doesn't pull rank here. He doesn't appeal to his apostleship. Instead, Peter addresses the elders as an equal, a co-elder, sum presbyteros in the original, uh, and he's he's like them. He serves the chief shepherd. Uh, that, of course, would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Chief shepherd there in verse 4, by the way. Right. Uh, so, Alex, what about you? Why, why does Peter call himself an elder? Well, like you said, he is an elder, and I think that's likely both by age, he's an older man, and also by qualification, he is worthy of the office of an elder in the church. As we noted in our introduction to First Peter, there does seem to be an emphasis in the gospel accounts of Peter's preeminence among the apostles. It may be that just as Peter exhorts the elders to be examples to the flock, so too, maybe here he's offering himself as an example of how to be an elder. Peter's role as shepherd over God's people is made clear by Jesus' commission to feed the sheep in John 21. And with that promise is the promise of martyrdom. Peter's audience, I think, is looking to him for guidance. And that's a broad audience at that, right? Chapter 1, verse 1, all those different places they're spread out to. But as the apostles die out, one by one, it will be the elders that Christians will need to guide them. So verse 1 again, Nick, talk to us for a second. What do you think gives Peter authority to exhort the elders? So one thing Jesus said before he ascended was all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so if Christ has all authority, uh, that uh, pretty well leaves none for the rest of us. He's got all of it. And so really, any authority that church leaders wield is uh, derivative from Christ's authority. Hmm. And so Peter, uh, he, I think, does that by pointing to the sufferings of Christ. Um, 
uh, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, he says there in verse 1. Being a witness of those sufferings, and uh, he leans into that in order to exhort these elders. And so it's no wonder that Peter, once again, appeals to Christ's sufferings. Much of the book has dealt with suffering, both Christ's and the Christian's. Uh, We've seen it every chapter up to this point, and here it is making another appearance. Suffering is is linked with leadership, because if if shepherds are going to pattern their service after the model of their chief shepherd, after Christ, it will mean sharing in his suffering. Contextually, these Christians are experiencing, or are preparing to experience, suffering through persecution. The temptation would be to avoid persecution and send out the rank-and-file members While the leaders kind of sit back, away from the fray. Yeah, you pawns go first in chess, right? Uh, Or uh, also to maybe use a more contemporary leadership language uh, idea. The leaders may be tempted to eat last at the table of suffering. And it's true, leaders eat last. They should be the first to taste persecution, though. And Christ shows as much by his willingness to drink the cup of suffering on our behalf that that's the case. Our good shepherd, a good shepherd today is not merely one who makes good decisions. A good shepherd is one who is willing to endure the first brush with suffering uh, on behalf of the flock. So uh, that's a bit about uh, what I see here concerning Peter and and authority and exhorting the other elders. What say you, Alex? Yeah, I agree. And and I want to talk for a second about Peter's apostleship. You know, what gave Peter authority was first his apostleship. And he starts his letter that way. Chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus. His authority as apostle was established by Jesus, and Jesus' choosing of the apostles. They did not choose him, but Christ specifically chose them for this role, John chapter 6, verse 70. And all belief and unity in the church is to be based off of their word, the word of the apostles, John 17, verse 20. Their word not only included the testimony of Christ's suffering, as you pointed out, and Peter points out here in chapter 5, but a version of that testimony that was divinely protected and inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would remind them of all that Jesus said and did. That's John chapter 14, verse 26. But the other component of Peter's authority rests upon his own suffering and sharing in Christ's sufferings. We see the apostles enduring arrests, beatings, floggings, and intimidations in the early chapters of the book of Acts. But we also know that Peter will ultimately die for his faith, just as several apostles had already died for their faith by the time Peter writes this letter. So Jesus, he alludes to this. He alludes to Peter's future death in John chapter 21, verses 18 through 19. John comments on that in the gospel as referring to uh, a statement of Peter's glory. His death will be his glory. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 1, that he is a partaker of, of also of the glory that is to be revealed. And just as Christ's glory was his death on the cross, I'm tempted to see here Peter's glory in this verse as a reference to his own death to come in the near future. So these elders, Nick, they are to rule among you. And you talked for a second before about that, but again, clarify, does among you refer to congregations or perhaps entire cities? Sure, I, I prefer the, the, the former uh, congregations. Among you, among you, that language indicates proximity. These men are in the churches, or should we say these shepherds are among the flock. 
And so I, I lean toward congregations, probably house churches. That's uh, how they did it back then. Uh, what do you think? You know, this is one of those tricky points of doctrine, I think, where the biblical text could support either view. We've had to examine the scope of an elder's jurisdiction before on previous podcasts, like in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You can see the archives for that. So when Paul writes to Titus, he says that Titus was left on the island of Crete to appoint elders in every city. Hmm, every city. Well, on the one hand, every city doesn't necessarily mean every congregation. What if a city had more than one congregation or house church? Would then one group of elders oversee all of the house churches in that city? Or would there be separate groups of elders overseeing only one house church at a time, each congregation? So on the other hand, maybe the church was so small in each city that it was assumed there just existed one congregation in that city. So one city, one congregation would sort of be synonymous. The congregation would be the church of that city. But we get to Thessalonians, and when Paul writes to the church of the Thessalonians, he mentions that uh, there is a need for appreciating those who labor over them. In other words, that's the elders, chapter 5, verse 12. But at the end of the letter, Paul commands that this letter be read among all the brethren, chapter 5, verse 27. So should we take that to mean that there were multiple congregations in Thessalonica, and thus the need for the letter to be passed around locally or even regionally? And if so, should we also see then Paul's previous statement about the ones who labor over them as referring to a single group of elders who labor over all the congregations in Thessalonica or even a wider region? And so we have the same question here. Peter's audience is spread out over many regions and cities. It's Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia Minor, Bithynia. So does Peter speak to the elders who rule among each congregation in these regions, or does he speak to the elders who rule among all the congregations in each city of these regions? It's hard to say from my view because the text doesn't say. So depending on how we read the text then, these passages could be referring to what we style today as autonomous congregations, each with their own eldership. However, these passages could easily support the idea that a single group of elders were overseeing congregations across an entire city or region, like what we would call today a diocese. Regarding the idea of a diocese, that seems to be the picture gleaned from church history. As we noted in our James podcast, James the Just was recorded as being the first bishop, that's an elder, over the city of Jerusalem, according to the church historian Eusebius. Now, was Eusebius making this up? I don't think so. Uh, from the text, Acts chapter 15, you do see that James is lumped in with the elders there at Jerusalem, and he even seems to be the spokesman, indicating perhaps his primacy among the elders there at Jerusalem. So was the church then, uh, by the time you get to Acts 15, was it, was it so apostate that they've uh, abandoned the faith and have appointed a single bishop as head over the elders and the church in Jerusalem, even while the apostles still lived? I don't think that seems very likely. So I'm compelled to lean towards the biblical justification of the diocese model. But, as I said before, the text could support either model. So that's a little bit about bishops and the model of their jurisdiction 
from scripture and church history. Now concerning these bishops, Nick, they are warned not to rule for the sake of sordid gain. So if we pay the elders, are they guilty of sordid gain in verse 2? Elders who are paid for their service are elders who rule well, according to 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. That indicates their work of shepherding is known by the church where they serve. Such elders are considered worthy of double honor. That is, they're worthy of the payment they receive. Peter does not appear to be speaking about such elders when he warns concerning elders who do their work for shameful gain, uh, as my ESV reads it. Peter says, do not shepherd from a position of greed or a position of desiring to obtain money by extortion or embezzlement. Such shepherding would not be ruling well and therefore is unworthy of double honor, let alone single honor. (laughs) Rather, Peter exhorts elders to shepherd eagerly, which is another way of saying the elder must serve of their own free will. Uh, voluntary, as you pointed out earlier, Alex. Uh, So what do you think about this sordid gain business? I I think you said it well. I agree. Payment for the good work of an elder is biblically appropriate, uh, appropriate, as you cited from 1 Timothy 5.17. Peter's exhortation to these elders, then, I think is supposed to be self-reflective. They're to check their own motives and intentions so as to reaffirm what they signed up for in the first place. They signed up for a selfless job of love and sacrifice in order not to gain money, but to please the chief shepherd when he comes to reward us. So it's a, it's a check, a self-reflective check on one's own motives. Verse 3, they are to do their work not domineering over those in your charge, says my English Standard Version. And so the question, how are Christians allotted to the elders? What's the process? Yeah, my NASB words it that way. They are allotted to mm. these to these elders under their care. And that, how did that happen? Well, wouldn't that be nice to know? <laughs> I mean... We have these different verses that we try to extrapolate from, right? We have Titus appointing elders in Crete, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And Timothy was told not to lay hands on anyone too quickly. And perhaps that's in reference to appointing elders in 1 Timothy 5, 22. However, Titus and Timothy, they were not operating on their own authority. They were operating on the authority of the apostle Paul. He sent them to do that work. So most would agree that Okay, the apostles had authority to appoint elders and to allot groups of Christians to the care of those elders. But what about after the apostles die? No New Testament text tells us the process uh, post-apostles, in which case I think we're left just logically with, with two options of how this can be approached. You either have elders appointing the next elders, or you have the congregation or congregations picking their own elders or some mixture of the two, right? That's really the only possibilities. And by what process then would they be chosen? Well, assuming that they meet the qualifications laid out in Titus and 1 Timothy, some have suggested casting lots, similar to how Judas was replaced in Acts chapter 1. I remember a teacher in preaching school once, he suggested a vote, though there was really no verse reference from the New Testament for that idea. But if we look at church history, though, the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, they did affirm what sounded like the normative 
mode and practice of appointing bishops. And basically, the bishops or elders in the whole region would appoint a new bishop by majority vote. And the candidate had to have a final approval by one of the major hubs of the church that existed in Rome and in Alexandria or in Antioch. So according to uh, canon number six of the Council of Nicaea, that's the normative mode of appointing bishops or elders. So how did that come about? Did the church sort of make this up with the freedom allowed by God for them to determine their own selection process? Or was this process handed down to them by the apostles themselves, even though we don't have reference to that in the New Testament? And the answer to that question, I'm actually not sure. So, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Nick, what do you think, though? Well, you know, one thing that comes to my mind is that uh, God determined the times and places in which all of these Christians would live, move, and have their being. Uh, This is established by what Paul says in Acts 17, 24 through 28. It's no accident they live in Asia Minor. Uh, specifically in the five areas listed back in 1 and verse 1. Uh, they, they live in those regions in which they live, as God has, uh, has determined. Uh, they have the church family that they have, uh, because that is where uh, God has placed them. Uh, moreover, God the Holy Spirit had made these older men overseers of their respective flocks to care for the church, which they shepherd after the pattern of the Good Shepherd, this is something, again, that Paul discusses with the uh, elders from Ephesus in Acts 20 and verse 28. Plus, there is uh, the collective wisdom of the body, and, and I think that's uh, uh, similarly called upon in like Acts chapter 6, where they are to look out and pick out from among themselves what appear to be deacons, uh, although the word itself uh, does not appear there. Uh, and so uh, when it comes to that model. It's a very simple model, right? Just look out, pick out, and all that. And I think that simplicity is evident in, like, uh, the didache, which simply says, appoint for yourselves bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, 15 verse 1 of the didache. Uh, No notes there about, uh, you know, succession or approval from elsewhere, any of that. Just very simple. Look out, pick out, appoint for yourselves, and all that. So uh, just a bit more to be added to the conversation there. Yeah, I like your uh, reference to the didache. That's something I'd I'd like to go back and look at some more. Well, Nick, what do you think is the unfading crown of glory in verse 4? Faithful shepherds will be given a victor's crown, the Stephanon uh, in the original language. This was the crown given to athletes who were victorious in competition, or it was given to generals who were victorious in battle. These crowns usually were composed of flowers or leaves. They would wither. They would fade. However, the crown given by God is unfading. It says the unfading crown of glory. That is, it is immortal. Rather than being composed of leaves or flowers, the crown Christ confers is of glory. No doubt, the same glory to be revealed that is spoken of uh, back in verse 1 of this chapter. So a bit of what I see here. What do you think about this unfading crown of glory, Alex? Yeah, the term unfading, uh, we already saw that term used in Peter's letter at the beginning of his uh, writing in chapter 1, verse 4, speaking of our inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. 
That phrase, will not fade away, is the same single word in the Greek for unfading here with our crown of glory. In our First Peter 1 podcast, I mentioned that I see this unfading inheritance as a reference to the resurrection body. And in our James chapter 1 podcast, I mentioned a similar idea where it mentions in James 1.12, the crown of life to be rewarded to us after faithful endurance. I took that also as a reference to the resurrection body. So here in 1 Peter 5.4, we have sort of the amalgamation of what James says in 1.12 and what Peter already said in 1.4 with our unfading crown of glory which I think perfectly describes our eternal bodies in the resurrection given to us as our reward for faithfulness. So that's the way I see it. And uh, that kind of ties into the, the glory of your suffering and your death for faithfulness to Christ. How, yeah, that, that glory that is seen in your own suffering and your own sacrifice the world sees that and they see weakness and they see defeat. But it will be shown in the resurrection what that really meant, you know, for eternity. It meant you were victorious and faithful in Christ and you'll be rewarded. So we have this instruction to elders in the first four verses, but now in verse five, Peter switches and he speaks to the younger, or my translation says the younger men. Hmm. So who are these younger or younger men that Peter addresses? Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to see this as a, a general uh, statement for younger people. Uh, it's juxtaposed with uh, the elders, the older men, and uh, it seems to be that these are those under the elders' oversight. Uh, these uh, may even be young people generally uh, who tend to be more independent in their thinking or more rebellious in their youth. And so we have this call here to uh, to clothe yourselves uh with humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Uh, and so uh, they are essentially commanded to be subject to or to submit to, or, or maybe even, uh, I'd have to probably look again. I would assume it's a middle voice verb, and so it's more like uh, subject yourselves or submit yourselves to the elders. It's, uh, it's supposed to be a voluntary, a willing thing uh, that goes along with this. So uh, that's what I see here. Those those who are under the oversight of the elders. Uh, Alex, what do you think about this younger slash younger men business? You know, I'm tempted to see here the younger as a metaphor for deacons, uh, since Peter moves on to another group in the next sentence when he says, now all of you. And so if there was no distinction between the younger and now all of you, then it seems that Peter would have just started out by saying all of you. So the order of instruction would first be for elders, and then for those who are in an office of leadership under the elders, like deacons, then everyone else in the church. And the command to everyone, not just the leadership, is to clothe yourselves with humility. And the word used for clothe yourselves is the Greek enkombumai, which was a white scarf or apron that was worn by slaves to distinguish them from freemen. So the idea of serving one another then is applied to all Christians, not just leaders, but leaders and laity alike. And that little proverb that Peter gives at the end, he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That points not just to our humble service to one another, um, 
Well, it does. It points to our humble service to one another. But that verse, that proverb, that's not from the Masoretic text. It doesn't match. It's actually from the Septuagint version of Proverbs 3.34. So if you're looking through your, your Proverbs, you might notice that it's off because he's quoting the Septuagint. So you humble yourselves, you serve one another. Then Peter says, God will exalt you at the proper time. So Nick, how do you think God exalts us at the proper time? Verse 6. Yeah, at the proper time, or in due time, uh, the New International Version puts it that way. Uh, this would be God's time. Uh, we we often do not know when that is. Is it a day, a week, a month, a year, years from now? When When is that proper time? However long it turns out to be is the right time because it is according to God's time. And similarly, the manner in which God exalts can vary and may look different from one person to another. And yet, here we are, especially 21st century Western American Christians, and we are an instant message society. We want things now. We want instant information. We have uh, instant access to content via the World Wide Web, and better have a high-speed connection. Give me that 5G. I don't want to have to wait for stuff, right? We are living in generation now. You have a pain? Pop a pill. Want some food? There's an app for that. The challenge is to engage the slow, long work of enduring for the sake of humility the things of this life, things that have deep meaning and that last. They take time to achieve. Uh, Also, we want what we want the way we want it. We think we know how God should exalt us, but you know what? He knows best, and he knows how to exalt us in his good time. So that's what I see here about at the proper time. Alex, what do you think? Yes, I agree. Uh, It may be worth noting as well that for these suffering Christians, especially those trying to lead by example during extremely difficult times, their day of exaltation may never come in their lifetime. It may only come on that final day when they are raised from the grave. On that day, in the resurrection, it will be revealed to all of creation who are the sons of God and the inheritors of the earth. So Nick, Peter says, cast your anxiety on God. How do we do that? I actually have a whole sermon on this, but uh, as we talked uh, before the show, my computer uh, crashed earlier this week, uh, and so I didn't have access to that sermon, unfortunately. But oh no! <laughs> um, as I recall, the language here of cast uh, cast your anxieties—it's it's you're hurling it, you're hurling this to heaven. And I think probably the primary way that we do this would be prayer. That in prayer we take those things that are worrying us, that are troubling us. And we hurl them to heaven, and we take them to the throne room of God, and we put them before his throne. The challenge is to leave them there. What we'd like to do is we like to tell God all about it, lay that burden down before him, and then as soon as we say amen, pick that burden back up and say, okay, now how am I going to fix this? Right. But what we're called to do is to leave that anxiety, that trouble, that worry there, and allow God to work. So... Uh, prayer. I, I think prayer is, is probably the primary way. Alex, what do you think? I agree. One has to pray to cast their anxiety onto God. And Peter gives you the one thing you need to know to do that. 
And that's you need to know that God cares for you. Many of the Psalms were written while the psalmist had tears in his eyes. David talks about his pillow and his bed and his couch being soaked wet from his tears. You know, perhaps one could even try to write out uh, one's prayer, if that's helpful. Perhaps you can't uh, think of the words in the moment while, while just praying. And so you can write it out. You can say the same prayer. You can find a prayer from the Psalms or from other scripture, or you can just pour out what you need, what you want God to help you with, or just simply for help. And this is how we cast our anxiety on God. Yeah, that, the, writing out your prayers, that's a good discipline, by the way. Absolutely. Well, Nick, we have here in verse 8 another exhortation of Peter to his audience to stay sober and alert. Why are we to be sober and alert? Well, uh, yeah, the answer for this is in the text, right? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, we, we need to be sober-minded and we need to be alert because we have a powerful enemy, the devil. And he wants to destroy us for all eternity away from God. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, in this text, the primary reason as to why we need to be sober-minded. Alex, uh, what do you think? Yeah, this is the third time Peter warns his audience to be sober. First in chapter 1, verse 13, then as we saw last week in chapter 4, verse 7, and now here in chapter 5, verse 8. Each reference alludes to spiritual warfare. Uh, We stay sober, first of all, to prepare our minds for action, to gird up the loins of our mind. That's what we got in chapter 1. We stay sober for the purpose of prayer, ready to face the end of all things. That's what we got in chapter 4. And now here in chapter 5, we stay sober to resist the devil. I wonder if Peter was reflecting upon his own difficulties when Jesus asked him to stay up all night praying with him in the garden before he was arrested. But Peter and the other apostles, they kept falling asleep from grief. That's what Luke 22 verse 45 tells us. Peter tells his audience to stay sober three times. And yet it was Peter himself who was found sleeping three times in the garden. That's Matthew 26 verse 44. So interesting parallel there. Peter Hmm. knows that this is important because he himself has experienced what happens when you don't stay sober and alert. So, Nick, the devil was a lion. That's strange. I thought he was a dragon or a serpent, or is he a karuv, or is he something else? I don't know. Why is the devil called a lion? Why does he want to devour us? Yeah, our, our 21st century image of a lion may be what we got when we went to the zoo. And at the zoo, the lions, they're in their display habitat, perhaps behind thick glass or bars or at the bottom of a pit with a high, smooth wall that they can't jump over or climb up. This was not the first century idea of lions, especially in Asia Minor, since in Ephesus, one could be condemned to fight wild beasts to death. Uh, Paul talks about this over in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 32. In addition, animal imagery is often used in Scripture to denote human rulers, and especially this lion business in connection to, say, pagan rulers. Psalm 22 and verse 13. We, of course, know Psalm 22. That's a heavily messianic psalm. It's a psalm that's on the lips of Jesus as he's dying on the cross. And there, in Psalm twenty-two thirteen, 13, it pictures prophetically 
the crucifixion of Jesus, and the human rulers who did the deed are depicted there as ravening, roaring lions. Also, highly figurative prophecies concerning kingdoms often use lion language to depict the coming world powers. You can see Daniel 7 and verse 4, and also Revelation 13 and verse 2 for an example of that. So, it may be that Peter depicts the devil as a lion in order to figuratively picture the unholy alliance between the ruler of this world, the devil, and the rulers of this age, uh, governing authorities, and and how they are working in tandem to oppress the church. And, And if this is the case, what's especially fascinating for me is that you have two wills involved. You have one human will uh, in the particular ruler, and then you have a supernatural will, and that is the, uh, the evil one. And that's at work in the persecution of the church. The human authorities have their various reasons for doing what they're doing. Perhaps the appeasement of a mob, say, or perhaps a distorted view of what is lawful. And on the other hand, the devil has his reasons for doing what he does as the enemy of the church, and the opponent of all things holy. He hates the church. He hates all things holy. He hates God. And yet, both of those wills meet in the same act of persecution and oppression. Very, very fascinating thing. If, again, that is the case, that Peter is uh, figuratively depicting that relationship between the evil one and the governing authorities. That's what I see here. Alex, what say you? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right on and well said. You know, before the crucifixion, Satan had already offered Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world. And after a hard pass, Jesus does eventually begin to reclaim all of the kingdoms of the world, but in a different way. It came through the cross. It came through suffering. And after the resurrection, not before, Do we see Jesus claiming all authority now in heaven and on earth and the commissioning of the church to take back the nations through discipleship? Now the devil, he will fight like a lion to stop that from happening. He had all the kingdoms. He doesn't want to lose that. And thus, because of his will, we share in the sufferings of Christ as we fulfill the great commission. And the earthly rulers... Yeah, they'll do the same. They will feed you to the lions to stop the worldview of Christianity from spreading and threatening its lust for power and empire. So, Nick, the devil, I mean, do we resist him here or do we flee as in other passages? What, how do we know what to do and when to do it? Do we resist the devil? Do we flee the devil? What's going on? Yeah, we... We certainly flee from sin, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, flee fornication. Uh, but we resist the devil, and when we do so, he flees. Uh, this is James 4 and verse 7. Resist is a term of action. Christians actively engage against the foe. Passivity will lead to defeat. So by our resistance to the devil, Christians will remain firm in the faith, right? That's what uh, Peter says here. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced the world over by the brotherhood. Uh, Firm, uh, as in firm in the faith, firm, that's a foundational term. It indicates that Christians are not to be moved. 
that's a bit about what I see here about resist uh, versus flee. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think that's a good distinction. You know, when tempted to sin, we should flee, like Joseph running away from Potiphar's wife. But when it comes to suffering for the name of Christ, as Peter has discussed extensively throughout his letter, we must not cave in to the temptation of forfeiting our Christian values. You know, that doesn't mean we can't flee for our lives. Peter's audience may have done just that. That's perhaps why they are in exile. But uh, that does mean, however, that wherever we are, we must stand firm and not suffer as an evildoer. We have to stand firm by living out the Christian ethic wherever we go, even if that means going to our death and martyrdom. And by the way, Peter says, you're not the only one suffering. You have to remember also that you are not suffering in isolation, but Christians everywhere undergo persecution. And even to this day, Nick, 2,000 years later, Christianity is still by far the most persecuted religion in the world. It always has been and it always will be until the resurrection. And yet, we still keep spreading and we still keep winning souls. We are winning and spreading and growing. So keep trusting in the grace of God. Peter, will get to that in just a minute. So first, verse 10, Nick, talks about our call to God's eternal glory in Christ. How did God call us to his eternal glory? Yeah, this it's, it's a fascinating phrase, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Ours is a, a glorious calling in Christ. Ours is a calling which leads to eternal glory in Christ, both uh, the act of calling, that to which we are called, and he who calls us are all in view. Uh, God's work on our behalf, that's the latter portion of this verse, which we'll talk about in a moment, that is rooted, uh, all those are rooted in our gracious calling. By grace, he begins a good work within us, and by grace, he will complete it. In addition, God is the God of all grace. There's no limit to his grace. And so it's no wonder that in Ephesians 2 and verse 7, Paul writes about the immeasurable riches of his grace and how all of that is for his people for his church. So uh, that's a bit of what I I see here. What do you think about this calling, Alex? You know, I think God calls us uh, first and foremost through the gospel. That's how he calls us to Christ. And by receiving the gospel, we become in Christ. And Peter describes that like a temple of living stones built off of the precious cornerstone in chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. This temple, this temple of God, which is the church, houses the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit, which we know from the entire biblical narrative manifests itself in a pillar of light and fire in the heavenly realms. But on earth, to our physical eyes, that glory looks like suffering and death for the name of Christ. So the world looks at the dead body of Jesus on the cross at Golgotha and says, defeat darkness, weakness, shame. But if you could see with heavenly glasses what actually was happening, there was a pillar of light and fire, and it was God's glorification of Jesus Christ. And that would be manifest through Christ's resurrection. So on the day of resurrection for us, all of creation will see the truth when the veil is removed and the sons of God revealed. Our eternal glory is now 
but the revealing of that eternal glory is on the last day. So Nick, talk to us for a second in verse 10. We have this, what sounds uh, like a very precious promise here, that God will perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish us, but how does God do that? Yeah, so let's walk through each of these uh, terms here. The first, uh, uh, your uh, New American Standard says perfect, uh, perfect. Mine says restore. Uh, they have the idea is of fixing something. It's the same word that's used of the apostles while still fishermen, mending their nets after fishing all night. Mending and restore, same word uh, used over in Matthew 4 and verse 21. So here, Peter, one of those fishermen who was mending the nets, he knows that Christians strain and fray under the constant pressure of suffering and persecution, and it is God himself who will mend, repair, fix us when the night is over. Uh, next is confirm. Uh, this means to make firm. It's no longer weak. It's the same word that's used for Peter over in Luke 22 and verse 32. Peter would be weak, and he would deny Jesus. But he would be the one, once he turned back, who would strengthen his brethren. Uh, strengthen, confirm, same word there. Uh, in Luke twenty two thirty two, so Peter he he remembers his master's words, and he's doing just that in this letter. It is a call to be strong. It is a call to be confirmed in the Lord. And then the next term, strengthen. The only place it's used in the New Testament is right here. Strengthen. It means to strengthen. All right. Uh, God sends the Christian new, and I'm persuaded bodily strength. It's like going to the gym and and working out hard and getting a good burn. Muscles hurt and ache. And you're stronger after. Well, that's kind of what uh, the crucible of suffering is. Uh, it is uh, spiritual gymnastics, as it were, and yet God, he reinvigorates the Christian even through uh, that kind of suffering. And then uh, the last one here, established. This is a, a builder's term. It was used to describe a firm foundation. God, he grounds the Christian he lays or constructs a foundation which is firm and solid. And so following a tumultuous time that suffering can bring, Christians need the firm foundation only God can give them. So perfect or restore, confirm, strengthen, establish us. This is the work that God does in us uh, here. What do you think, Alex? Man, I think that's awesome. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Well said. Well, what then do you think about verse 12? Uh, Peter says that what he is testifying to, it is the true grace of God. So what does he mean by that? What is the true grace of God? God's grace is what God has done for us in Christ. What Christ did, especially in his suffering unto death, that's a central theme in First Peter. Uh, what Christ did, that's what's at the heart of the grace of God. So this, uh, as Peter writes here, uh, this is that which he is declaring and exhorting. And it may be the epistle as a whole. I think that that's a valid understanding, uh, all of all five chapters that he's written. Uh, and so, and he's talked about the life, death, resurrection of Christ, uh, and in that life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the grace of God, uh, indeed the grace of the God of all grace, is made manifest. It was what the prophets predicted, even pointing to the grace that would be yours, he said back in 1 and verse 10. Such grace brings with it eschatological rewards. In other words, rewards at the end of time. 
1 Timothy 1 and verse 13, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And also it brings present blessings. This was uh, 5 and verse 5, how God gives grace to the humble. And he talked about God's varied or manifold grace back in 4 and verse 10. So grace, grace, start to finish all the way through. We stand firm in God's true grace. That's what I think. What do you think about this true grace of God, Alex? Yeah, I think you really honed in on all those different levels of grace that Peter expresses in his letter. I kind of take a step back and, and sort of trying to see what this might mean in the whole collage of God's grace. The true grace of God really is the conquering of darkness through our suffering. Uh, we suffer patiently. We endure suffering by faith and trust that God's kingdom will prevail. It is said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 300 years of martyrdom and Rome eventually became Christian. Not one sword was lifted to accomplish this feat, but Christians threw themselves at the Roman machine and through the true grace of God conquered victoriously. And so for today, I'm wondering, are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to sacrifice today without the promise of seeing instant progress? Do we trust in the true grace of God? Would we be willing to still sacrifice to such great lengths, knowing that the the difference that we hope to see may not actually come to fruition for 300 more years? And that that takes a lot of faith, I think, in the true grace of God. So Nick, verse 12, Peter gives a uh, shout out to his uh, writer of the letter here, Silvanus. So who is Silvanus? Yeah, uh, it seems this is another name for uh, a brother that we meet in the book of Acts named Silas. Uh, That's his name there. Uh, And so just uh, an alternate uh, spelling, perhaps. Uh, But uh, he he served in certain capacities in the early church. Notably, he was involved with the Jerusalem conference back in Acts 15. And you can especially see the work that he does in verses 22 through 33. He was a prophet. He was a delegate that was sent to read the letter that had been written at the conference that contained the the Holy Spirit-determined judgment. Uh, he was he, Silas was charged to, he was sent to go, send, to go read that among the churches. And also, he was a co-worker with Paul on his second missionary journey. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement. Barnabas is going his way, Paul's going his way. Paul tags Silas and says, hey, you come with me. Peter mentions him here. Because it, uh, so there's a couple, couple reasons why. Perhaps, I mean, he's a good letter carrier. He may be the one who carried the letter. Uh, but chances are, just as you said, Peter mentions him because Silas was probably Peter's, the big term for it is amanuensis or secretary. He wrote this epistle at Peter's dictation. And that's why Peter writes, by Sylvanus, I have written briefly to you and the rest. So, uh, that's a bit about what I found concerning Silvanus or Silas. What did you find, Alex? Right. Silas uh, being a prophet, I think, was significant. You mentioned that from Acts chapter 15, verse 32. And, you know, it's important to remember that Paul's amanuensis, it wasn't just a guy that he hired off of Fiverr, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Silas, funny. he's a prophet. He spoke and wrote by the Holy Spirit. He endured much of the same suffering that Paul did, 
while traveling with him on his second missionary journey. So Silas's pen upon Peter's letter is not a question or uh, a, a point of suspicion. It's like, no, Silas's pen to Peter's letter, that adds to the overall ethos of the message sent to these Christians. Silas is a prophet. He has the Spirit working through him to deliver the Word of God. He's recording the Apostle Peter's word to them as the Word of God. Peter suffered extensively. Silas has suffered extensively. They both have the credentials of Holy Spirit inspiration and much suffering that they've faithfully endured. And that's exactly the kind of messenger these people need to hear from, Peter and Silas. So, verse 13. I'm still yeah. geeking on Fiverr, man. That's not funny. a guy hired off of Fiverr. Not that. I'll tell you that right I wonder now. how many people in the audience know what Fiverr is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you... Uh, but if you if you do need to hire somebody to you know to do some sort of a freelance work for you, Fiverr, right? Maybe Fiverr will send us an endorsement check here now because <laughs> yeah. of the podcast. F I V E R R, Fiverr. <laughs> All right, verse thirteen. Peter says, uh, "She who is in Babylon greets you." Okay, well, who's the she in Babylon, and where is Babylon? It seems to me she is a sister. Uh, congregation. This is probably comparable to John's elect lady or elect sister language that he uses in uh, his uh, second epistle, Second John, verse 1, also verse 13. Babylon, I'm persuaded it is a figure for Rome, and I laid the case out for that uh, back in the introduction. Go back into the archives and listen to the introduction of First Peter, where I laid out my case for uh, Babylon being a figure for Rome in this epistle. What say you, Alex? You know, I think Rome is a likely choice. However, I'm still intrigued by the possibility of Babylon being a cryptic reference to the apostate Jerusalem, which will be burned to the ground just a few years after this letter. And the rationale, as I mentioned in the introduction to the podcast, um, the rationale is that you know Jerusalem is referred to spiritually as Sodom and as Egypt. And that's in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8. And those, those cities, Sodom, Egypt, they were ancient places infamous in the Old Testament for being judged and destroyed by God for their ungodliness. So the Jews who persecuted Christians, they did so, as we see in the book of Acts, often by manipulating the Roman authorities to crack down on these Christian dissidents. Well, these unfaithful Jews were, by that action then, even as... They proclaimed to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar, right? These unfaithful Jews then, by their actions and their words, were sort of what we would call in bed with Rome, so to speak. And therefore, they are like a prostitute riding her beast around, only to find one day, not too far from this letter, that that beast will turn around on and destroy her and turn on her. And that's what I think the the the, the whore of Babylon is referring to in, in Revelation. But it is it is hard to argue against the Rome the Rome position. So there it is. <laughs> well, Nick, verse 14. What is the kiss of love? Yeah, greet one another with a kiss of love. Um, it sounds synonymous with holy kiss, which is found in our New Testament way more times than I remember. <laughs> 
Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. And so I think this is probably a, a synonym for that. This was a it was an established practice in the church, probably performed during assembly. The kiss would be given either on the brow or on the cheek. It wouldn't be on the mouth, all right? All you creeps out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a symbol of familial love among siblings, friendly affection, uh, even honor. The closest I think we get in our day is uh, like a holy handshake or a holy side hug. We usually chalk this up to, to cultural practice, though, so that's why we typically don't do this anymore. Uh, what do you think about this kiss of love business, Alex? Yeah, it was also an old synagogue practice to have the women sit together and the men sit separately. So there was a separation of men and women in the in the synagogue. And so in that kind of setting, it's likely that this kiss on the cheek or on the brow was given from man to man or woman to woman. And so uh, my Italian friend Federico Arnaldi, he used to do that. He used to give me a hug and kiss me on the cheek. And that was normal for him, but it was super uncomfortable for me. So... <laughs> It's Italian. That's right. (laughs) Kiss of love. Well, Nick, do you have any final thoughts on 1 Peter? I mean, we're we're all done now. 1 Peter's done. What do you think? That's it. Um, So the word that comes to my mind is timely. (laughs) I think the message of 1 Peter is very timely for uh, the, the time in which we live. I believe that there is increasing opposition to the word and the will of God and the way things God the way God wants things done. Um, I talked a couple of weeks ago on our during our Wednesday night Bible class about um, the Equality Act uh, that is is set to be uh, passed by Congress uh, or at least voted on. And if you haven't gone through, I, I read through uh, the act. And it is a radical redefinition of what gender is. We are doing at a more rapid pace than anybody else what what no other country has done and survived, by the way. And we, we have a word from God that says that he created them male and female that our gender is creational. It's the way God made us. I mean, even even probably saying this could could get this uh, this podcast banned in certain places, right? And yet, this is the revealed revelation from God. Are you, Christian, going to stand firm in that? Or will you cave to culture and say, well, you know... That's just that's just uh, that's just what. The, and by the way, the, the damages that are going to be done with the passing of a, of this act are already on display, with men transitioning from male to female and then competing in female sports. Women will suffer because of this. Children will suffer because of this, and already are. Uh, what is being done to little girls who are transitioning? It's awful. It is dare I even say it, outright demonic, what is happening to little girls as their bodies are being mutilated under the assumed banner of equality and gender rights. 
such kind of speech and such kinds of stands will bring opposition from state and from unbelievers. It will bring, dare I say it, suffering. And so I, I, I am persuaded. First Peter, the message that's in here, if you haven't already, go back and listen to all the episodes that we've talked about. And, and listen, Alex and I, we, we do disagree. It's The name of the podcast is Swordplay. So there are times when you go back and forth. Right. And, and we do that uh, in love, but we are, we are committed to, uh, to God, and we are committed to His Word, and we are committed to a, a faithful communication of that. And we stand in solidarity against the outright evil that is coming against us in the form of legislation, again, under the assumed banner of gender rights and unity. Come on, man. It's time to unite. Not at the cost of truth, and not at the cost of God's Word, and certainly not at the cost of holiness. So, again, the word that comes to mind is timely. But, brothers and sisters, be of good cheer. The end, the very last sentence of the book, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Even in the midst of suffering and persecution, we can have peace. How? It's supernatural. It comes from Christ. Its source, its origin is otherworldly because it's not of this world. We get it from our God. So, so that's that's what those are my final thoughts on First Peter. Alex, the floor is yours. Yeah, those are weighty words. I think we we have to let that sink in. Unity without Jesus is nothing but the Tower of Babel. I think that, for me, the final thought here that uh, I think will linger is that which Peter said concerning suffering and how know that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And so the instinctive response to suffering is to feel isolated And that feeling of isolation will compound itself when government policy makes you isolated. Shut the doors of your church. Don't gather in your house. And it's that threat of isolation which keeps us from being spiritually fed and nourished and exhorted the way we need to be, like Peter expresses in this letter. And when persecution and suffering comes today or tomorrow or whenever in the future, if it's against Christians, there will be no distinction made between Catholic Christians and Orthodox Christians and Protestant Christians and non-denominational Christians. There will be no distinction. The suffering will be the same. And so perhaps this is a good time to start building bridges where as You've seen between Nick and I, we don't have to agree on everything in order to have a conversation, to be friends, and to acknowledge where we do agree. And that kind of bridge building needs to happen not just internally within our own churches and people who mostly see things the same way we do anyway, but it needs to happen across the entire realm of Christendom. Because we're going to need to know that we are not alone and that we're not isolated, and that our suffering is not abnormal. 
And we need each other to keep our view and our perspective in that direction. So that's my final thoughts on First Peter. And now it's time for our featured creature. Featured creature. This week's featured creature is the angel Gabriel. Nick, why don't you tell us about Gabriel? Gabriel is one of two angels that uh, are mentioned by name in the Bible. The other, of course, is uh, the archangel Michael. We talked about him back in the episode on 1 Peter chapter 1, and see that episode and the featured creature there for our discussion on Michael. Uh, Gabriel, his name means God is my warrior, and I also found that it can also mean strength of God. Uh, His own self-declaration identifies him as an angel who stands in the presence of God, Luke 1 and verse 19 says. He plays an active role in the book of Daniel, both uh, giving and interpreting dreams or visions, and he is mentioned by name in chapters 8 and 9, and there is speculation that he may also be the man who appears to Daniel uh, and talks with Daniel in chapters 10, 11, and 12. He's not explicitly named there, though, so, again, there's room for debate. Uh, In the New Testament, he is uh, very much involved uh, with the announcements of the births of John the Baptist and Jesus to Zechariah and Mary, respectively, in Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 38, is where you see him make those two visitations. So, uh, that's a bit uh, about Gabriel that I found. Alex, talk to us about Gabriel. Gabriel, God is my warrior, as you pointed out. It also could be God is my hero. I like that one. Like the archangel Michael, whose name means who is like God, Gabriel's name points back to an attribute of Yahweh God, Yahweh's uniqueness, not the uniqueness of the angel. Like most angels, he looks like a man. Daniel 8, chapter 15 is explicit about that. It reminds me of the two, quote, men who were actually angels who saved Lot before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And the verse in Hebrews 13.2 says, Entertain strangers, for some have entertained angels without knowing it. Well, if they had big wings sticking out the back of their trench coat, you might have noticed. But uh, apparently they look like men. As I mentioned in our feature creature on uh, Michael, Archangel Michael, The book of 1 Enoch, chapter 20 in your Ethiopian Bibles, tells us that there are seven archangels, and each one has a job description. Gabriel is one of those seven archangels. His job is to oversee paradise and is in charge of the seraphim and cherubim. Those are the guardian creatures of paradise. And in 1 Enoch, chapter 10, Gabriel is also the one who is charged with eliminating the giants who existed in the pre-flood world. So between First Enoch and other Dead Sea Scroll material, we see that Gabriel is, yes, one of the seven archangels, but he mostly hangs out with uh, Michael, Raphael, and Uriel, so the premier four archangels. And these four are commissioned to be the ones who will throw Satan and his angels into the fiery furnace on the Day of Judgment. And as we saw in our episode on the book of Tobit, there are seven angels who, quote, present the prayers of the saints and enter before the glory of the Holy One. Tobit chapter 12, verse 15. Gabriel is presumably one of those seven. He appears to Zechariah, says, I stand in the presence of the uh, of God. I stand in the presence of the Holy One. You know, when you see Gabriel in the New Testament, he is extra nice to Mary. 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. He's a little harsh with Zechariah. (laughs) No more talking for you. But overall, he is still the heavenly messenger par excellence in the uh, New Testament Gospels. So he's a heavenly zookeeper by day. He's a giant killing assassin by night. No, that's not just the premise of the next Marvel superhero. This is Gabriel. (laughs) And that is our featured creature. Well, I guess that's going to do it, right? <laughs> that's right. If you have, uh, if you're so inclined, uh, go in to the Apple Podcast Store and leave a review. That'll help boost uh, our rating in uh, that respective place. Just search Swordplay and subscribe to the podcast there. Leave a review. Uh, that'll help us. Share it on social media too, if you're inclined as well. If you have a question, you can text it into the Swordplay text line. 316-24-SWORD. That's 316-247-9673. Also, if you have a question, you can email it to us. Right, Alex? That's right. Send your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We appreciate you hanging in there with us for this series of podcasts on the letter of first peter and we will keep you posted very soon about the next book or topic to be covered come again to swordplay because this is where you get a double-edged perspective on scripture